Welcome to American Psychonaut, episode two. We're bringing you psychedelic news, psychedelic culture, and psychedelic science. And this week, we're bringing you the psychedelic Dennis McKenna. He's a man whose name and reputation certainly precedes him in the world of psychedelics. He's a doctor of botanical sciences, a university lecturer, a researcher, an author, a renowned psychonaut, and I just learned this week that he is also a Colorado native. Dennis, what's up, man? That's great to be here, Will. Uh, well, lots of things are up. You know, I think the, uh, the uh, aftermath of the Psychedelic Science Conference, which was last week, were you there? I was. I was indeed. I was kind of running around like a chicken with my head cut off to a certain extent. Likewise, but... likewise. I didn't even have a chance to see many presentations. I saw, I think, two presentations. You know, I was just running around seeing people and, uh, and making connections that way. So that's the way these things go. I mean, it was intense. It was... It was a real zoo, but it was fantastic. I mean, in, in it that was. sense, it's great. I mean, 13,000 people, they told me. So that makes it crazy. the biggest psychedelic conference in world history. Yeah. Which I, is, I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> the world I, is waking up to it. It is. It does definitely seem to be. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I couldn't help but think while I was I was kind of wandering around the floor there, looking at all the booths that were like, you know, companies that are growing mushrooms and selling growing kits and selling, you know, uh, substrate blocks and that that kind of thing. It had to have been kind of weird for you. Like you, you and Terrence literally wrote the book on how to grow psychedelic mushrooms at home, seeing it come to this this place where like now it's a there's all these legal businesses growing around that that had to be kind of crazy for you the fact is growing these things is really pretty dead easy and we had a uh, you know we just described a very simple method and that put into the hands of many people the tools to do this you know they could just go to the grocery store and buy the materials they needed. They had to get the spores, of course, someplace. But most people with a little persistence and patience could figure out how to do it. So in that sense, the Magic Mushroom Growers Guide, you know, was, uh, was I think, significant. It brought it into, you know, sort of a low-tech space where you know, any intelligent 10th grader could figure this out, you know, and, and many of them did. I mean, literally intelligent, nerdy, you know, science geeks in high school did many science projects based on this. And, you know, I think their parents maybe didn't look too closely at what was going on in the basement. <laughs> well, it's, but it's some... wild that it, it's come from there from like a, a, a book that you wrote, a pamphlet or whatever, a small guide. And now we have this huge psychedelic science conference where there's all these businesses that are built on the, on the same model that you guys put forth like 50 years ago. That's pretty crazy. It, it is rather amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's rather amazing. It's been around for a while and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's gone. Well, 
it's it's interesting how certain of these psychedelics have kind of you know they they've uh, become global you know they've they've ascended to a global stage mushrooms certainly ayahuasca is another one and of course we've had LSD around for years and the MDMA and those sorts of things interestingly this morning I was uh, out in my car I was driving I I uh, clicked into NPR and uh, there was a conversation about MDMA and the history of MDMA so it's very much part of the cultural meme now everybody's talking about psychedelics yeah it seems it that was something that that conference kind of like seemed to embody to me was it seemed like all these different communities, like there were businessmen and there were scientists and there were hippies, all of them coming out of kind of the shadows and realizing like they were part of a much broader community. It, it definitely has come into the limelight. Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, Colorado seems to be the epicenter of a lot of this change. You know, so I'm proud to say that I was uh, born and raised spent the first 17 years of my life in Colorado. And uh, it wasn't like that back in the day. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. something that we had to be very careful about. And, you know, I mean, li like all people in in that space at that time. But uh, uh, could you have ever imagined living almost in Paonia? respectable, you know? Yeah. yeah. Could, could you have ever imagined living in Paonia back then that this was going to be like the epicenter of the decriminalization for, for these substances? I never did. I never imagined it. <laughs> That's, I, I was excited to learn that you grew up out there. That's one of the, the prettiest parts of the state, in my opinion. Yeah. Do you happen to know Paonia? I, I do, yeah. I've, I camp out there fairly frequently. It's beautiful. Okay. Well, actually, I was just out there a couple of weeks before the conference, I, and there was a symposium in Aspen. Aspen, as you can imagine, is, is also another epicenter for psychedelics. There's now an Aspen Psychedelic Resource Center there, and they put on a very nice symposium. They kindly invited me to come and be the keynote speaker and I have a soft spot in my heart for Aspen anyway, because it used to be a place that, well, in high school in Paonia, you know, there wasn't a lot of cannabis around, you know, but we knew that if we go went over to Aspen and sort of, you know, hung out in the right, with the right people in the right places, you know, and, and looked needy, some kind hippie would come up and offer to sell us some weed <laughs> and awesome. that was how we managed to score it so i mean uh, <laughs> that must have been uh that must have been back around the time hunter thompson was living there and and running for sheriff hunter thompson was there i never met the man but uh yeah he was there he was there uh, it's pretty wild, man. It's just, I, I saw that on your wiki that you grew up in Paonia, and it, I just, I got excited. I didn't realize you were a Colorado native, man. Yep, it's true. And um, both Paonia and, and uh, Aspen are still pretty sweet places. You yeah, know, at a, at a certain point, the, the hippies moved into Paonia and pretty much took over. It's even got its own strain of cannabis called Paonia Purple. 
And uh, the hippies have really, or the countercultural people, the psychedelic people, have really upgraded the place. You know, I mean, they moved in and opened organic restaurants and, you know, organic farms. And, and, you know, they really made it a, a pretty nice place. I mean, before it was nice, but it was not progressive particularly you know it was a coal mining town and fruit growing town yeah and we were certainly uh kind of in the underground at the time you know and i mean we we both well terrence left paonia two years before he finished high school but i was i remained there and we were sort of uh, you know we we were not uh flamboyant we were not really we we're trying to keep a low profile, I guess, because sure. yeah. you know the town. Um, the town was not open to this stuff at that time. It, so, as far as far as um, the legalization movement, it's it's huge and it's exciting and like I, the the possibilities seem really endless. But is there anything about decriminalization that like makes you nervous or that you have reservations about? Yeah, there are a few things. I I think that, uh, you know, as a community, we have to be careful about uh, the co-optation and uh, the pressure that this puts on natural psychedelics. Like like, uh, with psilocybin, there's no problem because you can grow tons of psilocybin. You know, it's, it's not a supply issue something like ayahuasca or ibogaine mm-hmm. are, you know, there's more pressure on that. Another one is peyote. There's a lot of concern about peyote, uh, <coughs> you know, because it's basically a threatened and endangered species. Right. And uh, you can make the case that, you know, legalization will open something like that up to many more people. There just isn't enough, you know, and the same with ayahuasca to a lesser degree. Ayahuasca can be grown and uh, it's very popular, as you know, but the solution there, in my opinion, uh, comes out of forming alliances with indigenous communities in the Amazon to produce ayahuasca sustainably and more or less to discourage people from going to South America to drink ayahuasca, bring the ayahuasca up to North America, yeah, you know, and bring, bring the medicine to the people, not the people to the medicine is what I've been saying lately. And decriminalization opens up that possibility uh, what I would like to uh, what I would like to see happen is there are many centers in North America, Canada, and Europe that are already doing this, but they're they're underground or they're almost underground. Those centers should be uh, allowed to operate freely and in the open, you know, and that encourages responsibility. And if, if there's a local, uh, like, call it alternative therapy center or something like that, that mm-hmm. happens to offer uh, an option to take psychedelics, that's the right context. 
to present this th these things in a lot of cases, not so much in the clinical context. I think I think there is a place for that, you know, for that kind of highly structured, uh, you know, therapeutic context. But in most cases, something similar to the usual, uh, uh, you know, ritual facilitated indigenous usage patterns that works for most people. I mean, these things are usually uh, a group experience anyway, you know, and, and that's the way they're traditionally used. And so, you know, why not? If, if these things are going to diffuse into society, we need to think about how we do that in a way that respects the medicine respects the traditions of their use, it also encourages responsible use, you know, and uh, it all comes down to education, really. And, and so these, these uh, holistic health centers or whatever they are could, could be a perfect place for that, to educate people about them and then to provide the medicines in a context that uh, is appropriate, you know, and that, that, uh, uh, you know, that, that effectively encourages people to approach it in a, you know, with a little common sense. And uh, that's the way to do it, in my opinion. And then in a rare cases or lesser cases, you know, if someone has severe, uh, mental problem, PTSD, or that sort of thing, it may make sense to do it in a clinical context. What I don't want to see is a, uh, you know, a, a situation where only the wealthy, only the elites have access to these, to these medicines and these therapies, and everybody else is, uh, you know, prohibited or prevented from doing it. That doesn't seem to be fair. No, and that's, uh, it seems to, well, I, I wrote about this recently, there's a number of different scientists and organizations that seem to be kind of racing to uh, develop non-hallucinogenic synthetic versions of psilocybin, ibogaine, right. LSD, and, you know, sure, maybe that would open up access the argument is that that would open up access people could take these things home and put them in their medicine cabinet and, and easily take a you know something that helps like an antidepressant but what, yeah. what are your thoughts but, on that but Do you where, think, where's the fun in that <laughs> right like what is you know? how important is the psychedelic part of psychedelics well my own bias my own belief is that this is a non-starter. I think these people misunderstand what is going on. I think you need to have the psychedelic experience in order to get to the root of the problems that people take these for. It leads to a reorganization of neural architecture, you know, connectivity, synaptogenesis, and all this. Mm -hmm. But that arises from the the experience itself. I don't think you can split these things apart, you know, and just, just have the molecule and say, take the molecule that'll, you know, fix the receptors that will, that will do all this stuff on the neurological level. And you really don't need to bother with a psychedelic experience. So 
I really disagree with that. I mean, this is this is basically saying the psychedelic experience is an undesirable adverse side effect of the right. molecule. Right. I couldn't disagree more. I think that people take these to have access to meaningful experiences that change their lives, you know? And if you just take it and maybe it changes your receptor ratios, changes a lot of things on the neurological level, but if you don't have the experience, what makes it any better than the than the psychopharmaceuticals that we already have? You know, I mean, it's. I just think it's. I I think this work is being undertaken. Number one, probably by people who don't have never had a psychedelic experience, yes. and perhaps yeah. don't appreciate, you know, the qualitative aspects of it. And then, of course, there's the profit motive. You know, we can come up with a molecule that has this adverse effect uh, engineered out of it, and we can sell it to a lot more people. And certainly the profit motive is, uh, you know, very much part of the psychedelic renaissance, you know, or the, the psychedelic revival you know, I, I guess that I guess that capitalism and greed is part of the equation, no matter what. And psychedelics don't cure you of that, you know. So, right. or maybe some people, but I think, uh, yeah, I, I could. Uh, I just, I just think this is a complete misunderstanding of what psychedelics are. You know, if, if you. I mean, the point, the word itself means mind manifesting, you know? And so if you produce a molecule that does not manifest the mind, then by definition, it's not a psychedelic. Kind of in that same vein, you, you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I've, I've been wondering and talking with people in the community about this idea that, like, as, as we're building this new frontier of medicine there already exists a long like ten thousands of years of tradition and ceremonial use of these substances right and i i kind of been wondering like as we develop the curriculum for psychedelic therapists and the certifications and the licensures how much should in your opinion, like how much do you think we should be building from scratch and how much should we be consulting these ancient traditions and appropriating some of, some of their, um, some of the traditions that they use to facilitate these things? Right. Well, I think that, uh, you know, cultural appropriation or co-optation is a concern, uh, but I also think that we have to acknowledge that, as you said, uh, you know, indigenous traditional cultures have been using these things for 10,000 years. You know, they've learned a lot about how to use them. And this accumulated knowledge, I mean, one can say, well, it belongs to these cultures, you know, and we shouldn't be stealing from it. Uh, that's one thing, but you can also say, well, these plants are the common 
cultural heritage of humanity. You know, these really belong to earthlings, you know, and everybody is indigenous to earth. You know, we're all indigenous people. I, I think these plants should be thought of as a common, uh, you know, almost co-evolutionary uh, heritage of, of humanity. And, uh, uh, you know, so we should accumulate, we should learn from this accumulated knowledge. At the same time, we should acknowledge that, you know, we're not indigenous, you know, we don't belong to indigenous cultures. We can, we can borrow some of these practices and build on them. We have to develop a, a paradigm for the 21st century that takes the best of traditional knowledge and the best of, uh, you know, contemporary psychotherapeutic or psychiatric knowledge create a fusion of that, create something that is more than either one by itself. So a new paradigm. I think, you know, the, the uh, psychedelic psychotherapists of the uh, therapy of the future may resemble traditional practices more than it resembles, uh, uh, you know, conventional psychotherapy. Conventional psychotherapy, for one thing, is usually a one-on-one kind of thing you know it's the therapist and the patient and it's sometimes it's a group situation but i think that i think that uh you know to to uh make these experiences available to a wider number of people group settings are probably the way to go you know i you've probably been to some some uh retreats and so on involving ayahuasca or other things. What I, and I've been to many and I've organized some myself. Uh, That's another conversation. But what I have seen in my experience is the group dynamic that forms in a small group, ideally a small group, you know, the group dynamic that that spontaneously emerges as people undergo these experiences and share their experiences is really an incredible thing. And it, it produces a therapeutic space, a therapeutic opportunity that would not, uh, you know, that wouldn't happen if it were a one-on-one kind of thing, you know. And then people come to these uh, these events, these retreats, they undergo the experience, they share their experience, and very often, at least in my experience, they form a community around that. You know, they set up a WhatsApp group or whatever. People continue to keep in touch and support each other. I mean, this is a beautiful thing. How, how long do you think um, human beings have been taking psychedelics? Well... That nobody really knows. I am radical. I am on the on the fringes. I'm on the on the extremes of this. I I believe in the stone date theory. Yeah. You know, I'm one of the promoters of it. I think it's possible. I think it's probable, actually, that primate that psychedelics, particular mushrooms, basically have played a role in the in the coevolution 
back before there were Homo sapiens. You know, I mean, right. you could look at evolution. There have been several species, but if you, if you, I think it could be as far back as two million years, you know, yes. or even further, because what we know from different threads of information, we know that you know these these hominid. Uh, species. We're all co-evolving and interbreeding and all that together in Northern Africa and even mostly throughout Africa, but Northern Africa is thought to, because that's where we find the fossil evidence. I think that, you know, we know it was at least two million years ago. You know, the earliest hominids are that, that old from fossil evidence. And we right. know that the brain tripled in size basically in within a mere two million years it's a long time but where evolution is concerned it's a very short time it's the blink of an eye we know that there were hominids evolving in this environment we know from paleoclimatology that it was a much wetter much warmer place i mean now northern africa is a desert back in those days it was a savanna you know, but there were, it was wet. It was a much wetter environment. And we know from fossil evidence that there were cattle or the ancestors of the modern cattle were also in this environment. The hominids were hunting these things. They were eating them. They were getting, you know, milk and, and clothing and all kinds of things from them. And the mushrooms grow out of the dung of the uh, of the cattle, so you get this symbiotic triad. You know the the mushrooms, the hominids, and the cattle, uh, and uh, it's a perfect environment. If you go to uh, really any tropical ecosystem these days, uh, you can see the same thing. You know, uh, I mean, any any pasture in the tropics where there's cattle. If you look long enough and wait for the rains to come, it's going to happen. You know, yeah. you're, you're going to find these things. So the Psilocybe cubensis specifically is the pan-tropical psilocybin mushroom. Certainly, I mean, you know, certainly it was there. What we don't have is, I mean, mushrooms are not so good for fossil evidence. You know, I mean... Right. I mean, cattle, you can, you can find the fossil evidence. The hominids, you can find the fossils. Mushroom, not so much. You know, they harder. don't leave fossils. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's a reasonable inference that given this environment and the climatic conditions that, that existed, which we know they existed back then, it's reasonable to think that mushrooms were uh, found in that environment. And being primates, you know, being number one, curious, you know, number two, uh, hungry <laughs> most of the time, you know, right. actively scavenging the environment for things to eat. Surely they would have eaten these things. And I'm not yeah. saying that, you know, we ate mushrooms. There are ancestors made mu ate mushrooms and, and just became smart. It, it didn't happen that quickly. But they had these, you know, it had these effects. And what we know about neuroplasticity now and what this does to, you know, uh, uh, mushrooms stimulate neuroplasticity. They stimulate growth of, uh, 
of neurons and formation of synaptic junctions and all of this. So they stimulate the complexification of the, of the hominid brain and the mechanism of uh, epigenetics provides a way that this can actually be transmitted across generations. So all the pieces are in place, you know, and, and of course you can't prove this, but you can't, uh, you can't disprove it either. That's true. You know? I, when, <laughs> so, I, uh, when I've brought this up with, with some other folks I've interviewed, um, the, to play the devil's advocate for a moment, sure. they, the, the argument that I always get is like, well, hold on a second. This time frame corresponds perfectly also with when we discovered fire and we suddenly we were cooking our food and had all of this new caloric brain power that we could spend on bigger, more complicated thoughts. And, and that's what kind of pushed us to have bigger brains. Well, what, I've what already you... answered that. <laughs> in in a sense, yes, this was going on. I and mean, the investigation, the controlled use of fire uh, goes back according to, you know, what, what uh, evidence there is, and it's fairly sparse. But we know that uh, the controlled use of fire, there are sites that are at least uh, about 1.7 million years old. And uh, so... Yeah, these hominid groups, they knew the controlled use of fire. It put into their hands the ability to uh, uh, move from arboreal environments into savanna environments. You know, and the savanna environments is where uh, these cattle and these mushrooms were. So it let them, uh, and in fact, they used fire if, if the history of you know, in, in North America, for example, indigenous people would use, would, they would set prairie fires. And the idea was to drive these herds of bisons across, you know, over cliffs into valleys, and then they could just harvest them at their leisure. This was probably going on back in the, in the day in, in these environments that they were using. Yeah, they, they, used fire to, uh, you know, as a hunting tool and, and then also because they could cook and, uh, and cooking, by the way, gives you the uh, kind of the basic tools of pharmacology and chemistry, you know, the ability to make water extracts out of plants or whatever comes to hand that may have come much later but fire would played played a part of it i mean fire yeah definitely had an effect it had an important effect in that it expanded the range of these hominid groups and gave them this technology to cook uh meat and much better sources of protein that facilitated digestion so yeah the people that say this they have a point in the sense that you know your energy could go toward thinking rather than chewing <laughs> you know right. you spend yeah. much less much less uh, metabolic energy just digesting your food you know you softened it up and it's more easily digested so you had more time for uh 
masti- uh, you know, less time for mastication and more time for, uh, you know, contemplation, you might say. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I, that's, that's kind of where my thoughts have always been. Like, it's, wh- why couldn't both of those things have happened at the same time and both contributed to, to that expanse? Ex- yeah, and, and it's, it's not, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not any one thing. I'm just saying that the mushrooms and the presence of the mushrooms was part of a complex mix, you know. Another yeah. thing, for example, was... Uh, uh, there have been studies that show that uh, psilocybin increases vis- visual acuity, you know, at fairly low doses, it, it, it increases visual acuity. Mm. So if you're a hunter with a spear, you know, trying to uh, bring these, these uh, cattle-like ancestors down, that's got a facility. It, it basically, it made people better hunters. You know, uh, some some folks have, have said, you know, what, one criticism that's been been uh, leveled at, at this idea is uh, basically that if people are stoned all the time, you know, they they can't deal with their environment. A lot of times the high doses of mushrooms, you know, it doesn't put you exactly in a position to, you know, closely monitor your environment right because you're loaded you're not paying attention on the other hand lower levels of these things puts you into a hyper vigilant place where things in the environment you're much more aware of them you know i mean you, you you you're you're aware you know, if if you, uh, for example, even today, if you take, say, psilocybin or ayahuasca or something like that, even though we're not indigenous people and we're certainly not hunters, but we can take psilocybin and go into nature. And if you just go into nature and sit quietly in that state, the background comes forward. You know, I've often said this, that brings the background forward. You notice processes going on in nature that normally are suppressed, you know, because they don't have immediate survival value. I mean, you need to have your attention focused on the saber-toothed tiger that's about to eat you. But if you do it in a controlled situation where, you know, for the moment you don't have to worry about saber-toothed tigers, you could take it and you are become much more sensitized to processes in the environment that are normally that we don't pay attention to. So I I think that's part of the picture as well. That makes, that all makes perfect sense to me. And I, I I am, I'm a firm (laughs) advocate for, uh, for the stoned ape theory. I think you guys really are onto something there because it, you know, I, it just seems like in my mind, (laughs) Mushrooms had to be the first like mind-altering substance we really started using as a species, like brewing things, sure, smoking because things. You don't need tools. That's the yes. other thing about mushrooms. Something like, you know, all you have to do is have curiosity, you know, and the curiosity to bend over and pick this thing which appears out of nowhere and take it. No technology involved. That's the thing. 
you know, something like ayahuasca and the mushrooms are, you know, particularly Psilocybe cubensis, they're big and they're, they're noticeable, you know, some psilocybin mushrooms, lots of mushrooms are kind of hard to find. They're tiny. You really have to be looking for them, but you know, Psilocybe cubensis just kind of smacks you right in the face and, and yeah. you know, you see, they get to be big. They're, they're golden and they're noticeable, you know? And uh, so I think this was, this was, uh, this was part of it. This was a big part of what was, what was going on, you know, something like ayahuasca or any of these plant-based medicines, if it requires making extracts and so on, yeah, they could figure out how to do that, but that was probably several million or hundred hundreds of thousands of years in the future where they actually started, you know, practicing what amounts to primitive chemistry, you know, make make uh, make water extracts and throw stuff in there and see what happens. Yeah, uh, mushrooms don't require any technology. This is. Uh, one of the things all you have to do is pick it and eat it and wait and see what happens okay fast forward two million years um (laughs) the last time you and i talked you it was 2018 and you were just getting ready to um launch or announce or get started the mckenna institute mckenna Um, academy mckenna academy pardon me pardon me um Go ahead and, and tell us about the McKenna Academy and what's what's been going on in the last five years for you guys. Okay. Well, yes, uh, we incorporated the McKenna Academy in 2019. Uh, originally in Canada, I moved to Canada in 2019, so we incorporated here. And then for various reasons, we decided it made more sense to... Uh, base it in the States. Uh, so even though I live here, we incorporated in, in California as a 501c3 uh, nonprofit. So we're registered with the IRS as a nonprofit educational and scientific organization, uh, which means for one thing, people that want to support us, they can get tax deductions from that. And uh, our people are all over the world anyway. I live in Canada. Many of our people live, we have people, board members and so on, living in Europe, in the States, in, in South America and other places. So we're kind of a, we're, we don't have an actual building or campus. We're just a virtual outfit. But uh, since then, so we incorporated in 2019. We did a retreat in Peru in November 2019, and then COVID hit, and of course that rearranged a lot of our priorities. The idea was that we were going to do many retreats, and that just came off the table for about three years. So we had to pivot and uh, develop an online presence, which we have done. We did a number of online events uh, in 2020 and 2021, 2022. Uh, Probably the most significant that we've done was last year. 
we did this conference called ESPD 55, which was the uh, 55th anniversary of the ethno-pharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs, uh, ah, okay. which is what ESPD stands for. And the original ESPD conference was uh, uh, sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health in 1967. And, uh, and it was a landmark conference, except that it was a private conference. No, no taxpayer got to go to it. What, what the taxpayer got from this was the book that came out of it, the, the proceedings of the symposium. And that book came into my hands at the age of 18 in, in 1968. And that was my inspiration to study ethnopharmacology because I realized there was a scientific background to this. You know, it was chemistry, yeah. pharmacology, botany, all of those things, anthropology. Well, the government was supposed to have follow-up conferences of this every 10 years or so. But in 1970, the war on drugs came along. The government became, you know, kind of embarrassed that they'd even had anything to do with this, even though a lot of the main, uh, you know, investigators of the time, like Schultes and Shulgin, these people were all at this conference, but they never, they never had a follow-up conference. So right. in 2017, I decided to do a follow-up. Everything fell into place. Funding, venue, all of that. So I did ESPD 50. And uh, we did it in the UK. That was a fantastic conference. And we published a book. We actually republished the original 67 book because it was public domain, right? taxpayers paid for it so we we published yeah, sure. it we published the uh <laughs> 2017 symposium together as a box set which you can still order from uh, synergetic press and uh and then five years later we decided to do espd 55 which we did and people can uh people can look at the uh McKenna Academy website and look at both conferences. If you go to uh, www.mckenna.academy and you look at the at the menu, there's there's a menu tab for ESPD. You can go there. You can look at the 2017 conference and the 2022 uh, conference. You can register at either one of these. You can register at ESPD55.com and uh, we'll steal your email, but that's all. We won't take any money. It's completely open. There's a lot of good stuff there. There's an incredible presentations there. You can watch them and, uh, and there's a book coming out. We've just, we've just finalized the, the symposium uh, volume for ESPD 55, and that'll be published either later this year or more likely next spring. But that will be okay. available, and Synergetic Press is the is the one that's publishing it. They're great press. They're a great outfit, by the way. They handled all of the book sales for the Maps Conference, so they're they're on track to be the premier. Uh, 
you know, psychedelic publisher in the world, or at least in North America. And incidentally, <laughs> just shameless self-promotion here, uh, the, my memoir, which came out in uh, 2012, before when I was just a freelancer, there was none of this academy or any of that. But uh, Synergetic just published a second edition, a 10th anniversary edition of my memoir, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss, and that's available too. And and it's it's the old one. It's the 2012 edition plus an, an additional chapter or afterward, actually, an additional 50 or so pages looking back on the last 20 years since the basically the first edition kind of ended in 2000 but this looks back on the 20 years 23 years since then i uh i was actually i was on the espd 55 site last night and i was listening to uh oh. paul stamets presentation on the stoned ape theory so i was really glad you brought that up yes all the presentations are there and the whole idea of the ethnopharmacologic search is that we want to look into the obscure sort of nooks and crannies of this space. You know, there's a lot of psychoactive drugs that nobody knows anything about. Uh, for example, the presentations that uh, uh, Shaheen did, uh, Shaheen yeah. Entenmann yeah, about that that Zoroastrian psychedelics. Pretty mm -hmm. cool stuff, actually. So people can people can buy that, or they will be able to buy that. But you can look at everything on the ESPD55.com site. Yeah, I am kind of a voracious podcast listener, and so when you shared that with me, it was like I have I've got talks to listen to for the next week and a half. Yep, yep. And perfect. Please feel free to share it. It's been a real pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure, man. I, I hope we get to talk again in the in the not too distant future here, and I get to catch up on some of the other stuff you're you're doing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, anytime. I'm I'm looking forward to the next one. Sounds good. All right, Dennis. Hey, take care, man. Okay, you too. Bye bye. Bye bye.